You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which is no good and camp. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. But unfortunately, I hate to break it to you, Pastor Butler is not here today. Uh, It's just me, but it's not Chris's fault. My schedule got crazy and we just couldn't make it work. So he's not going to be on here today. But I guarantee you that our brother Chris is with us in spirit You know, I just apologize that we couldn't make that happen today, but you're just going to be stuck with me. You're going to be stuck with my monologue. Obviously, my monologue is going to be a little little bit longer today. So don't turn the state. Don't don't you dare turn to some other podcast right now. Just hear me out. It'll be okay. I think I I think I can do this one uh, by myself, but we'll see. We always miss uh, Chris, but I'm going to try to make it work. Man, so much stuff has gone on this last week. I do want to give a shout out to the L.A. Lakers. I know I'm hard on y'all, but y'all got a huge, I mean, just a massive win against uh, the New York Knicks, who are a terrible team. But y'all y'all did end up beating them in like overtime by the skin of your teeth. And I'm sure that gives you a little bit of hope. So hope floats. So if that gives you hope for the rest of the season. Hey, man, you know, I'm never one to try to steal y'all's joy, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all are championship bound you just got to make sure that you actually get uh, to the playoffs first. Anyway, what else happened, man? Uh, we had the uh, Republican National Committee come out and censure Cheney and some other folks, uh, some other folks, because they were investigating what happened on January sixth. Um, they're being censured, and and I said that's the type of censure that that you should wear as a badge of honor. And then they came out, you know, in the in the statement about it, they came out and said that this was legitimate political discourse, that they were uh, persecuting people that were trying to have legitimate political discourse. Wow. I think we all know that there was nothing legitimate about January 6th. And to try to, you know, clean that up, to try to make it seem like it was just people who cared about democracy rather than people who were trying to go against the democratic process is just shameful. Um, and it says something about where the GOP is today. But let me say this. There were some folks in the Republican Party that spoke out and said, nah, this is not legitimate uh, political discourse. And so I want to give a shout out to, to Ben Sass, who you know made a statement saying, no, this was this was problematic. Um, I think Senator Mitt Romney also did the same thing. H.R. Uh, McMaster, you know, folks came out and said, no, this was actually illegitimate. And it's not something we should be covering up. This is not something that Liz Cheney and folks like that should be censured and punished for. So, you know, we got to work. We got to work on being able to admit when something went, goes wrong and, and try to fix it. And there's some Republicans who did that. And so we're going to give them a shout out, too. Um, but in general, the party has is problematic. The other person that was 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 kind of pushing against it was also Chris Christie. And I want to give po- both sides of the conversation. His, his part was like, hey, this is not the whole Republican Party. His, his point that he made was that the Republican National Committee is really just Trump people, still Trump people kind of representing what Trump wants them to do. All right. So that's the other side of the story. I think we can hopefully all agree that that's just a bad look. That is not healthy for our public discourse. And hopefully we can do better. 
As usual, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, uh, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. I want to remind y'all that we are uh, partnering with them on the Ann Campaign's Christian Civic Leadership Academy. If you are in the Atlanta or Chicago region and you want to run for office or you want to be part of campaigns or run campaigns or you want to better understand policy, you need to apply for that program now. We're going to get into the X's and O's and you're going to come out of that program knowing a lot more about what really goes on in politics than you can hear that you'll even learn in you know, some political sciences classes, right? The practical stuff. Um, and so it's going to be good, man. So if you want to apply, you got to do it. You got to do it this month. Uh, you need to go to andcampaign.org slash academy. You'll find the application there. And even if it's not you who wants to do it, you might know somebody who's really into politics and you're like, man, instead of just talking about it, why don't you go do some? Why don't you go get into it? If you know people like that that live in Chicago or Atlanta, then tell them about this program. We're trying to get uh, a very good pool of applicants. Uh, and this should be a, a competitive process, but one, nobody should be afraid of drawing in because we're being in is because we're going to be trying to get as much of a diverse set of applicants and, and fellows as possible. Man, if you want to join that, just if you want to be a part of it, you want to get into the game, let us help you do that. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And I'm going to be straight up with y'all today. Um, it took me way more time than usual to decide what topics that I wanted to talk about for this episode. Uh, usually during the week, I'll see topics. I'll write it down and say, OK, these are the three that I'm going to cover. I probably changed this list maybe four times just trying to figure out exactly what issues do I want to touch on? Because there's so many pressing issues going on last week, this week and continuing. Uh, So it was tough. I mean, we could have talked about the Winter Olympics and how, quote unquote, pro-social justice companies are conveniently ignoring China's human rights violations so that they can get to the money bag. So they make sure that their pockets don't get hit. And I think that should kind of influence how we view them on other issues that they say they care about when it comes to justice. But that don't hit them in the bottom line. We talked about that before. I'm not going to get all the way into it today, though. The other thing we could talk about and needs to be talked about is the shooting of Amir Locke, right? And the problem with no-knock laws, which has been a problem for a long time. You know, Gil Scott Heron back in the 70s was talking about no-knock laws and the, the damage that they were doing in the black community and how innocent people were getting killed. That needs to be talked about. We also could have talked about what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and how Uh, That could lead to another very serious war. We need to look at how really look at how the U.S. is going to respond. It's not an easy situation to be in. And honestly, another issue we could have we could have spent the entire I could have I'm by myself. I got to remember that I could have spent the entire episode talking about this Joe Rogan issue. As we see that that racism and some really awful statements have entered into that conversation. Now, many of you know, and many of you had comments about it. I saw the comments, got the emails, and I saw the mentions. Many of you know that we weighed in on the Rogan issue before the N-word video came out. And just so y'all know, there's a video where he was repeating, instead of saying the N-word, he was repeating other people say uh, the N-word. 
And there, be, you know, somebody put out a basically a montage of all all those times that he did that. Here's some other stuff that he said that was completely unacceptable too. Um, but I don't want to go all the way into that conversation and cover all the bases there uh, because I, I want to see how this plays out with Spotify. I, I really think that 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 story uh, is still developing because I want to see how they respond if there's more artists and more people who kind of jump in and what mainstream media continues to have to say about the issue. So we, we're not going to go all the way into it, but I do want to touch on it a little bit. And let me and let me say this. Let me start out by saying this. And I, I want to make sure I get these words right, because I know how y'all can be. But I'm going to say it anyway. This show will talk about race. Uh, as long as race is a serious basis of discrimination and pain in this country. Until America and the church, the American church, reckon with the historical and present racism in an adequate way. Then we're going to talk about it. We're committed to talking about that issue because race matters and our history of this country made it matter. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I haven't said this before, but I've even lost speaking engagements recently. And I suspect the reason that I lost them because I'll never say that. But I suspect the reason that I lost them was because sometimes how we address race. Now, we do so with compassion. We don't point the finger and just in any of that. But we, we don't hold back either. And I think that's a small price to pay. That's a that's a price that you have to anticipate paying when you're making public statements, when you have a public platform. So it is what it is. We will not downplay the problem of race in America just because it makes some people uncomfortable. As long as people are still suffering and dying because of it, that we're going to address it head on. And I'll be honest with you, I couldn't read the words of some of my ancestors. I couldn't go to the graves of some of my grandparents if I was afraid to address this issue in a real way, in a way that would hopefully transform the way somebody's thinking about it. And you can't do that if you sugarcoat it. So we're going to talk about it. I want to be very clear on that. And we have anybody who listens to this knows we have. Now, all that being said, I think we also need to realize that sometimes race is an aspect of an issue, but it's not always the center of the issue. Sometimes we need to acknowledge race as a part of a certain conversation without ignoring the rest of the conversation. Sometimes race becomes involved, but it's not central. It's not the driving issue. It's not the impetus. And it would be unwise of us not to see that when it's the case. It doesn't help our movement towards racial justice not to understand that race isn't the center of every conversation. Now, I know that once this video came out of Joe Rogan saying all this stuff, that the conversation very quickly shifted from COVID and censorship to race. And I believe that was by design. Now, Joe Rogan's words should not be ignored. If you on Twitter or whatever, you want to say something about it, say something about it. I, I don't really care. But that's not what the conversation was originally about. That's not what's really at stake here. That's not what the main stakeholders are worried about from what I can tell. You see, behind the narratives and behind the smoke and mirrors, behind all the fog and all the tweets, from what I can tell, this dispute is really about money and power. 
It's about money and power that people of color are not in control of, that black people are not the ones divvying out and all that stuff. Right. So it's not really an issue that we're in the middle of. Now, you know that these days, if a conversation has anything to do with the issue that we're concerned, that we're most concerned about, i.e. race for many of us, and I get it, then the entire conversation has to completely be about that and only that once that issue comes up. So there could be a whole different conversation. And if our one issue comes up, then we have to make the whole conversation about that. I think that's a mistake. I don't think that I I think we need to be very careful when we do that. I think that's a dumbed down way of viewing the multitude of issues in the public square. And honestly, I think it's intellectually lazy. We must be able to deeply care about race. We must be able to uh, make sure that the ideological right doesn't downplay it. We must be able to advocate for policy that changes the race situation in this country. We need to be able to do all that and at the same time acknowledge that it's not the core or most important issue of every conversation. Of many conversations, sure. Not of every conversation. And here's why that perspective is important. Because we have to be careful not to allow certain groups, in this instance, namely establishment progressives, To use race as their personal trump card. As their big joker, whenever they need public opinion to move to their side. So whenever they get into a conversation, they can't pull this out and say, hey, come to our side because, look, there's a race issue attached to this. If you watch closely and it's interesting and I send texts to my friends about stuff like this all the time. If you watch closely every argument that secular progressives get into nowadays they somehow find a way to, t- to attach it to race. Whether it's every single climate policy that they want to get passed, whether it's an issue like abortion. Margaret Sanger was a, a racist. It's well documented. But somehow today, abortion is primarily about helping black people. Really? Are we going to fall for that? Let me give you another example, if, if that's not enough. A recent poll showed that Americans are not at all in support of biological men or trans women playing women's sports. The numbers are terrible. The numbers are really, really bad for the pro-trans movement on that issue. Really bad. So one of these groups drafted a very desperate sounding memo saying that they had to find a way to push the numbers in their favor. We got to get this right. Something has to change because the numbers are looking really bad for us. Okay, so this is what they're trying to do. So they try all kinds of tactics. They try to frame the question in different ways. They try to tie it to different issues and they're testing all this stuff out. But none of that changed people's opinion. People were like, this is common sense. It, It just doesn't make sense. Right. So eventually. This group said that the only hope or the best hope to change public opinion on the issue of biological men playing women's sports is to tie it to racial justice. I I want y'all to let that marinate a little bit. 
to tie it to racial justice, not an issue that has really anything to do with race. But if we tie our issue to that, then maybe the public will go go along with us. Somehow, like I said, every conversation the secular progressive establishment has today either starts with or ends up being about race. Right. They, they find some way to tie it in. Let's take Black Lives Matter. We know we appreciate all they did to put the race issue at the forefront of the conversation. And we'll always give props for that. That was real. We also have to realize, though, before we even got any police reform on a national level, before there was even any legislation, the Black Lives Matter movement was about what was about black people getting killed becomes about sexuality. It becomes about everything but race. Y'all didn't see that? Y'all didn't notice how that happened? There's some folks on the far left that are using race as a pawn. That are stealing the hard-earned, that's that are stealing the hard-earned uh social capital, let's say, of the civil rights movement, and they're using that for their own separate agenda. They know that there's such a strong reaction anytime somebody brings up the issue of race, and there should be. Right. Like it's a justified reaction because of the history. But they know that anytime that issue is brought up, that the substance of any other issue that they might be losing on will quickly be forgotten. My my people, that that's manipulative. As my father would say, don't fall for the okie doke. Don't give them an out on an issue that has nothing to do with race because they bring up some issue. Even if it's a, a, a legitimate issue, but it's just not related. The real issue here, when we're talking about Rogan and, and, and the media and all this stuff is, that's going on, the real issue is not about race. The real issue isn't even about COVID and the stupid things that some of his guests had to say about that issue. The true issue isn't even really about Joe Rogan. It's about a revolution of independent media that the people that have control now cannot control. Whether we like Joe Rogan or not, and I'm not advocating for you to like him. I don't listen to him enough to say that you have to or should. But what you got to admit is that he's taken independent media to another level. Rogan has a larger audience than the top shows on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC combined. And let's think through this. What does that mean? That means that somebody's pockets are getting lighter. It means that somebody who had a lot of influence doesn't have as much influence or they're losing influence. And when people have that kind of power and they see it slipping, what do they do? They attack. We got to think through this. But here's the issue. It's not about being on Joe Rogan's side. We got to see as Christians that we should be supporting the independent media movement. Why should we be supporting the independent media movement, not the individuals or the individual shows, but just that movement? Because we've already talked about over and over again that the mainstream media is dividing us, is not intellectually honest. It can be very hard for Christians on certain issues to get fair, a fair shot, a fair play, a fair hearing. Y'all listen to the Church Politics podcast because you get to hear something that you know you're not going to hear from the mainstream media. And why don't you hear? Because they don't want you to hear that perspective. 
But when you have independent media, they can't stop you from hearing that that perspective. It ain't about whether you like Joe Rogan or he makes you feel good by everything he said. It's bigger than that conversation. If they can shut people down who have independent media and are building and have audiences and have an independent platform, then they can shut down the hand campaign, too. They can shut down anybody regardless of what their opinion is. And then they get to control it within CNN and within Fox News and, and, and within uh, MSNBC. Sometimes what's happening in front of you is a multidimensional chess game and people throw out misdirection and red herrings to make it seem simple and plain, to make it seem like a black and white game of tic-tac-toe. It's not. It's deeper than that on this one. If Rogan needs to be checked, then let's ride. If that's the case, then let's ride. But don't completely shift your focus away from why the establishment fears independent media. Yes, Joe Rogan is with Spotify, but he's with Spotify. He doesn't need them. He could go and be completely independent if he wants to. And he runs it as if it's independent. He doesn't have any checks on that in the same way. Now they're trying to make sure he does have those checks. Okay. when I look at the timing of this attack and how it came close to when, you know, uh, Spotify had to go talk to their shareholders and all that other stuff. When I look at the fact that a political super PAC, a progressive political super PAC might be behind this attack, it's looking like they might be behind this attack. It looks more and more suspect to me and more and more like a subterfuge, whether I agree with that man or not. And this is also why it's dangerous. And I've talked about this before. This is also why it's dangerous to have so many influencers leading the way on this conversation, framing the issue on this conversation, uh, 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 framing your forming your opinions on this conversation who have no familiarity with high level social and political strategy, who have no familiarity with game theory. We're talking about folks who haven't studied the tactics of minds like Lee Atwater and Saul Alinsky. Because if you did, you would know that Lee Atwater used Willie Horton in that instance to negatively depict black people, create fear within the white community and win elections for Republicans based on a model that they use for years to come. On the other end, you have somebody like Saul Alinsky, and I'm not comparing these two people to say they're equivalent. I don't y'all can make that decision, whatever you want to do. I'm just giving you examples. You got somebody like Saul Alinsky, who is the father of progressive activism. One of the things that he used to do was he used to send people in Ku Klux Klan outfits and hoods and white hoods. He would send them to the political and advocacy events of his opposition. The folks dressed up as Klansmen would act like they supported his opponent and then he would be able to brand his opponent as racist or he'd have them at one of his things saying they were against his movement. And then he'd be able to brand the other side. Look, the racists hate my movement. You should you should support us. That's witty, I guess it's clever. It's deceitful. Does it really help? If you're using that on other issues, if you're branding people who aren't necessarily racist, maybe some of them were. But if you're doing that to people who aren't necessarily racist, you're doing it just because they're your opponent. Then that's a terrible use of that social capital. Politics is more than what meets the eye. It's more than one issue. 
You've got to be vigilant. You've got to think through it without always using these identity shortcuts. Because these identity shortcuts can be uh, taken a hold of by somebody else and they can use it to mislead you, to totally get you off topic of the conversation. And I see a lot of folks tweeting stuff about this that's off the main topic. That's way off of the main topic that we're supposed to be talking about here. If someone is passionate about an issue but hasn't studied the depths of tactics like the ones that I just mentioned, then it's hard for you to see the entire picture. And it's easy for somebody to exploit you based on you just looking at at that one thing. There's there's a riot. There's crazy stuff going on on your right. And somebody points left and say, hey, that's racist or that's about abortion or whatever. And you miss the whole other thing that they got going on on the other side. We're smarter than that. We got to do better than that. People like myself and, and, and Pastor Butler, we don't always see everything. Nobody sees everything. We don't always get every issue right. Always willing to admit that. But we've been in the game for years and we've seen the tricks of the trade. And we try to talk about these issues to you in a way that lets you know it's more than just what you see with an untrained eye. There's a lot of stuff going on behind that. And people use these triggers, these trigger issues, these trigger words to throw you off of what the really the issue was really about. So Joe Rogan could be dead wrong when it comes to what he said on those two instances or what, however many instances. And the folks who are attacking him could could be wrong on the on the issue that's really at stake here, which is not a race issue, which is an independent media issue. If you are easily enraged whenever a certain issue is brought up and you have this knee jerk reaction and you have this Pavlovian response. Then you're going to be vulnerable to missing the larger point. If we if we allow ourselves to be one trick ponies, then we're going to end up in the circus. This is about something that might be outside the number one issue that you care about. And you got to be agile enough to be able to see that and not let other people tell you when to be upset. Stop letting people tell you when to be upset and what to be upset about. I might not like what he did. I may want to hold him accountable at some point, but I might also say, no, I'm not going. You're not going to use me (laughs) to jump into the middle of this. So you can. So we cannot look at what you're doing wrong. It's like there's two people fighting. You got a friend who's fighting, who's done some dirt and they come. You say, hey, man, you don't like this person either. Why don't you go fight him, too? No, brother, that's your fight right now. I might have some issues with him, but you're not about to put me in the middle of this. But when you but but if you allow a trigger word to put you in the middle of the conversation, when it's, it's a different conversation, then you got problems. So that's the point that I'm trying to make. Just consider for a second that that might be an issue, but it's not the primary issue. And it certainly wasn't the initial issue that folks were talking about. I'll be back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's Justin Gibbony, and we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. And I'll be straight up with you. I did not mean for that first uh, segment to go as long, uh, but it did, you know, and what what happened, happened. But my my main point for for that uh, portion of it is this, guys. Uh, Don't always be swayed by the trigger words. Don't always be swayed and make your opinion on a whole debate based on something somebody else did that had nothing to do with that debate. It's very easy to get us off track 
because there's always something to bring up about somebody. But that doesn't mean that it's really impactful on what the original conversation was about. And so if you think what Joe Rogan did was racist, cool. If you think he needs to be punished, cool. But understand that wasn't what the initial conversation was about. All right. And we need to make sure that we're a little more shrewd sometimes and how we allow the uh, the race issue to be used and not used because it can be abused. And my biggest point is not that we shouldn't bring it up. It's that when we bring it up about stuff that it's not really on when we bring it up on issues where it's not really the center of the issue that actually hurts us on the issue where it should be the center. Right. That actually is a, is a waste of that capital. It's a waste of that conversation. And other people are using that to their advantage. Folks who don't have necessarily our best interests in mind. So just, it's just something very important to keep in mind. And the other thing is, you know, some people come and say, hey, Spotify is media, too. Right. They're now part of the mainstream media. Yeah. But his platform is bigger than them. He doesn't really need them. And they let him run it as if it's independent. But now they're trying to add some of the take some of the, that independence away. You can have a debate on whether you like what's said or not, but if you don't see that bigger movement and the threat of that bigger movement, I would say that you're kind of missing what this conversation is really about and what the stakeholders are really trying to take control of. That's what you got to keep your eye on. Keep your eye on the money and the power. Another, I read a really good article, and, and let me start by saying this, and you guys have heard this before. Uh, polls have consistently shown that African-Americans are more moderate and conservative than they are liberal and progressive. Uh, Anybody who's in the black community, anybody who's at the dinner tables, anybody who's having those conversations at the barbershop or otherwise, that's nothing new. Um, It just so happens that a lot of the folks you see representing us on mainstream media in politics are on the far left or on the far right. And so you get the idea. And I think certain folks are trying to push the idea that most black people are uber progressive. But usually when you see those uber progressive folks, it's folks that come right out of academia who kind of, you know, accepted all that a academia had to say about, you know, the ideological stuff. It's folks in the activist community who in similar ways have kind of bought into that secular progressive narrative. That's not primarily the African-American community. And Christina Greer uh, wrote a really good article, really interesting article in The New York Times this weekend entitled A Leader Who Defies Easy Political Labeling. And I think uh, black people in general defy easy political labeling, but we end up voting mostly with Democrats. I mean, not even close. And I think that's because of racism. And it's because how in many, uh, many aspects, it's because how Republicans have handled it, but it doesn't tell the whole story. And I think this article kind of gets at that. So again, it's called A Leader Who Defies Easy Political Labeling. Finally, and the article, Christina's article is about New York Mayor Eric Adams. Uh, we talked about him before and she, she really digs into it. But she starts like this. She says that Mr. Adams is a political curiosity, elusive, and they are not sure. People are not sure how to view him after his first month on the job. What makes Mr. Ad- Adams hard to pin down is what makes him so interesting. He's offering a new model for how black leadership can operate in a predominantly white political system, leadership that is simultaneously progressive, moderate and conservative. Yet his approach to politics is familiar to many black Americans. This is what I'm telling you. Living as a a black person in America means facing hard truths. It sometimes requires holding two conflicting ideas in mind. Mr. Adams has 
tapped into the duality of being black in New York City. Many black neighborhoods are simultaneously under-policed and over-policed. That's such a strong, that's such a good statement. That's right. Mr. Adams' willingly, uh, Mr. Adams' willingness to work with the police while also identifying the systemic in- iniquities with the department contribute to a leadership ideology that may be off-putting to some, but that makes perfect sense to many black New Yorkers. And this is I, I do think I do think Adams is a very interesting guy. I think another example that she could have put into there is, as we always talk about, the defund the police such everybody you saw on Twitter um, who was kind of in, you know, in a in a in an influencer position um, was talking about, you know, from from my community was talking about defund the police and all this. And then you get a poll that shows like 70 percent of the community does not want them to be they want them to be reformed, but they don't want them to be defunded. Right. So you don't. Sadly, I think in a lot of ways, the black community doesn't really get the representation in office and kind of in the mainstream discourse that really represents what they believe. I can even look at, you know, the Georgia Senate race that's coming up. Right. You got two guys who who are black. And I think, you know, you can have opinions on both. We're not we're not trying to uh, condemn either of them and say they don't get anything good done or couldn't get anything good done. But on a lot of issues, you see one is all the way with the far left. One is all the way with the far right. And it's like, but that's not where your people are. That might be where the money is. That might be where the donor class is that that's, that's helping you break records to raise money. That's not where you're, that's not where the people are. And so you get in this situation, which is almost a miscarriage of, 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 of democracy where you're not really getting that true uh, leadership in the way you should. And I think it can be fixed. I think it can be fixed by uh, having leaders that are willing to, speak on behalf and more accurately speak on behalf of that community. Um, But it's a conversation we need to have because, again, so often it's presented that African-Americans are just progressive and what progressives believe African-Americans believe. I wish I I wish you could sit at me, sit with me at my Thanksgiving table when those conversations come up. That's not (laughs) that's not how those conversations go. Right. There's a disagreement. There's a there's a a very, uh, very serious distinction between us on, and people on a lot of sides. And the other thing about it is we're not a monolith either. So even within those disagreements, even with not fitting into either of those categories or labels perfectly, there's still a lot of disagreement there, right? So we don't want to romanticize it and say that everybody's on the same page. But what I can say is you don't get a lot of, uh, sometimes we don't get a lot of representation that represents that because people have to go through the system. And by the time they get out the system, they end up looking like the people who, Run the system, and that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of times uh, uh, what happens, unfortunately. Now, I'll say this too: to me, this is not an endorsement of Adams. I think the jury's still out on Adams. He's just been there for a month, uh, and so there's a lot of decisions he has to make. I think some of his decisions and the stances he's taken have been good. I think he uh, his his word wording on certain issues have, has been bad, and I question some of his stances. After I read this, it was funny. After maybe a day after I saw this, I read an article that said he was. That all New York City schools would have would be vegan for lunch every Friday. So I don't know when this goes into in the into force and somebody tell me if this is if it, if it was something different. But what I read said that on Fridays at New York public schools, only vegan stuff will be served. And I'm like, brother, like if you want to say if you want to say that we're going to have a vegan option for kids on Fridays, I'm with that. 
But to force everybody to do that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems kind of like, I don't know, it seems like uh, you're, you're trying to please certain people. But is that really what the kids need? Is that what the, you know, did the parents want that to happen or is that just you talking? Uh, so, like I said, you know, uh, like any politician, this is probably a mixed bag. I don't have any endorsements for the brother, but I do think there is some things that he bring, especially to the and I hope he doesn't go too far, but especially to the crime conversation. He has to do something about crime and his ability to look at the uh, kind of inequalities and all that, but also recognize that you do have to that crime is there's a there's a wave going on and you do have to in real ways kind of tamp down on that. It's searching for that balance, it's certain searching for that, that both and that I think can make you a good leader in a moment where, where people are really um, either discouraged or just so polarized that we can't come to uh, solid conclusions. You know, we're you know, we're in a situation where a lot of folks can't govern because they're not being realistic about how people operate and what needs to be done. So just something to keep in mind. I thought that was a really good article uh, uh, that she wrote. And. It, 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 sh- it shines some light on the truth that a lot of people in this community know, but isn't known outside the community. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. Um... I think we have to realize that trust plays a very important role in public discourse. You can disagree with somebody and have a level of trust in what they say. And when Americans have lost trust in their institutions, when they've lost trust in the experts, uh, when they've lost trust in just the institutions that they that they need to have some level of trust in to actually operate the country well without, you know, or otherwise you'll be very dysfunctional. Things go wrong. And I think Ezra Klein, who now writes for the New York Times and has some really good articles, man, I, you know, he is a very intellectually honest dude, probably a few, quite a few ticks left of where uh, me and Chris are, but he, he makes some very good points. He, he's, uh, seems to be ve- very diligent, um, informed. And again, he's just intellectually honest. So I appreciate a lot of the articles that he writes, but he wrote it. He wrote a really uh, interesting article in the New York Times. And, and the title of it is the COVID policy that really mattered wasn't policy. 
the COVID policy that really mattered wasn't policy. And here's how he starts it off. He says, if the CDC had recommended better masks from the beginning, how many people would have worn them and for how long? If the Biden administration had flooded stores with cheap rapid tests, would people have used them? If boosters had been pushed earlier and more loudly, would the United States no longer trail peer nations in vaccinations? Put differently, how much would getting our pandemic policies right have mattered? He says that when confronting uh, when confronted with a novel, contagious virus, the best way for governments to protect their citizens is to convince them to take the measures to protect themselves. He says something that the, the thing that's better than a mandate is not needing a mandate. He says, especially in free societies, the success of these efforts depends on trust. Trust between citizens and their government and trust between citizens themselves. Policy lies downstream of society. Mandates are not self-executing. To work, policy need, policies need to be followed. Guidance needs, needs to be believed. Public health is rooted in the soil of trust. That soil has thinned in America. That's deep. Public health is rooted in the soil of trust. Did we not see I mean, did we not see that so clearly during this whole covid pandemic, just a complete lack of trust? And I think there's two sides of that lack of trust. I think on one side, you have the CDC seeming to be, you know, changing its opinion quite a bit. And, and we get that they were trying to figure things out. But sometimes it seemed those opinions change based on kind of ideological pressure, based on pressure from what certain groups in power wanted them to say which led a lot of people to say, man, what's going on, right? Uh, when it comes to institution as well, you had Fauci, who I think has made some very serious mistakes here, right? Uh, you you have initially saying that masks didn't work, that nobody needed to go out and get masks. This is seen as a noble lie. But when you build, when you have a whole bunch of so-called noble lies like that, people just stop believing you. Not to mention that even the conversation about how this pandemic even started. And not and not being honest about potential conflicts and, and potential things to say that this couldn't possibly have come out of the, you know, that the lab leak theory was completely wrong. And then people find out that it wasn't that wrong and that you could be implicated in it. People are going to lose trust. And so on one end, you did have some institutional issues where people, you know, so institutional um, misinformation, right, that caused people not to trust what the experts were saying at the CDC, Fauci, and all that. So that's one side of it. But at the same time, when there's this type of pandemic, folks are trying to figure it out too. They don't have all the answers. And one of the things that the article pointed out, they're like, hey, he went to the Biden administration and said, hey, couldn't you just get some Republicans to push this too? And the Biden administration, I think they're right on this, was like, who? Any anybody that's tied to us, that's that's saying something on behalf of the administration or in partnership with the administration, the the, the right's not going to listen to him. I mean, think about it. Even Trump gets booed when talking about vaccinations at an event. That means that this is so polarized that people were just not going to agree on this particular issue. But I think what we could have done, I think Trump plays a part on this, too. So let's add another aspect to it. When Trump first starts addressing this, 
he's not giving all the information that he knows. We know that he's downplaying some of this stuff, maybe for his own interest. Right. So you got a country where we've given them props to say to, you know, the efforts that it took to come up with uh, the vaccine and the efforts that went into that from the Trump administration and in the Biden administration. We got to give we got to say that shows something about America and how well it did. But we're so far behind our peers and folks who aren't even, you know, as as large or, or, or aren't really on the same level as us when it comes to health and things of that nature are so far ahead of us in their response. Because many of them don't have these trust issues. Many of them, many of them can come together and say, hey, we have disagreements, but on this very serious issue, we need to come together and get through this together. The U.S. was absolutely not able to do that at all. From the beginning, the mask become the issue. The other, all this other stuff become the issue. Nobody trusts that this is safe. People are saying that this is just them trying to uh, give you um, vaccines for no reason. You have all these other things and it becomes this, this partisan sparring. Meanwhile, people are dying. Then we're putting, you know, we're putting certain people up and saying how great a job they're doing like Kumo and Kumo wasn't doing a very good job. Kumo's lying about his numbers yet. We're talking bad about the folks in New York. We're talking bad about these. I mean, in Florida, we're talking about, bad about everybody else and the people that we're putting up there as doing a great job just aren't really doing that good and it it, it eventually just blows up then we get reports and we get a, a real uh study that found out that us separating from each other and you know uh the distancing and all that wasn't as effective as people thought it was but yet we were coming at each other and condemning each other whether than saying okay what's the best way to make this happen our response our lack of trust, and, 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 and Ezra Klein takes it to this too. He says that our lack of solidarity, our inability to find common ground, a common narrative, and a common cause within the conversation about COVID really showed how dysfunctional our country is right now. And then I'm going to make the plea that I, I always make to Christians. I understand to some extent how. Folks outside of the church can be so uh, 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 polarized. But Christians have to be able to find a way to come together, especially in something like this. But what did we do? We all just took a side. That's what they tell you to do, right? Just take a side. So we all just take us took a side. Both sides were very wrong on one or two or three parts of this whole conversation. But we still took a side, defended whatever they said, instead of doing our best to say, how do we get through this together? Christians, first of all, have to be able to do it in the church. But the sad part is we just reflected exactly what was going on when it comes to all this tribesmanship and how that interacted with the pandemic. Christians didn't didn't carve out a new way to address this. And we did some good things. We saw even with the and campaign, when we had our churches helping churches, we did come together with churches helping churches helping churches to make sure churches got through. So it's not all bad, but in the general public discourse, Christians could have done a lot more to start bringing people together and say, Hey man, none of us want to die on this. What can we do to make sure people can live and that we can also be safe? And it might've taken some time. It might've taken some trial and error. Nobody had all the answers. But we certainly could have done much better in how we interacted with one another and how we 
uh, uh, refrained from making all type of accusations and trying to virtue signal and all this other stuff. And then the other part is forgetting about people in different positions. I had friends who could sit at home and they could, uh, 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 you know, get their money into their account. You know, payroll went right into their account, whether they were at work or not. And it was like, hey, we could do this for I could sit at home and, you know, we could be on lockdown forever. Well, guess what? Blue collar people, folks with kids and everything's closed down who are blue collar and have to go to work and don't have uh, their money coming straight to their bank account. If they're not if they're working hourly and they're not able to go to work, they couldn't do that. But there was a lack of concern for those people because they weren't in your class and because you who you follow on Twitter and who you uh, watch on CNN or Fox News wasn't saying that that was an issue. So they were just stupid and you didn't you couldn't feel their pain of why they needed to get back uh, at all. Christians got to do a better job of stepping outside of the tribalism, stepping outside of what partisans are trying to say and finding trust and finding solidarity to say, hey, this is bigger than the issues that we have against one another today. So I'm hoping we can take this example, a very sad example, because it did involve lives. No question. But I'm hoping we can take this example and grow and say, how can Christians be peacemakers and be making sure that we're finding a collective narrative, even within our disagreements to say, hey, man, this is bigger than us. We've got to do something and stay together and have some trust, hold people accountable that aren't being honest, but find a way to have some trust and solidarity to make it through because we were exposed as a country in many ways for our lack of trust and our lack of solidarity. As always, keep in mind, guys, that now that um, this year coming up and we'll probably have one of the next couple of weeks, we will be answering your questions. So if you um, are giving to us on Patreon, there will be special episodes that are premium episodes where we're just answering your questions. So, you know, uh, get on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics. Give us a lot. Give us a little, you know, whatever it is. We will make sure that you're getting some other episodes, some premium episodes where we're interacting with you and we're answering your questions. We are excited about doing that. Well, thanks for uh, making it through this episode where Chris wasn't here to uh, to to temper what I was talking about. Uh, He will be here uh, the next episode. But always, guys, you know that there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Kemp. Well, how about you? I said,